another edition. Mr. Nice Guy, I'm Ben Slowey. And I'm joined today by a photographer, a comrade of mine in the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and um, all around great dude. Uh, I'm excited to talk to him a little bit about um, uh, revolutionary politics and organizing, as well as uh, his photography and why he does what he does. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon, Nathan Schmidt. Thank you. That was a that was a very gracious intro. I, you know, it's um, it comes with a force of habit. You know, <laughs> like kind of like uh, sometimes sometimes I have to like ask people specifically how they're trying to get introduced. You know, mm. um, just in case I don't miss anything or botch something, but. When I first started the show, I used to mispronounce so many people's names. It was bad. Yeah, mine's pretty uh mine's pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um well how are you today, dude? I'm pretty decent. Uh yeah, just in the studio working a little bit today. Um yeah. Nothing much else besides that. Yeah, I feel that. It's uh snowing even more today. Um, and so we'll be inside. Uh, you, you, you didn't come to the, uh, action last night, were you? No, I'm, uh, I'm kind of housebound at the moment, uh, because, uh, my partner's out of town and I have my like little dog that has separation anxiety. Uh, so I can't be gone from the house for too long or away from because he freaks out. So, yeah, I, I totally feel that, um, yeah, it was real cold last night. Uh, it was, we were all like dancing around, like keeping our feet warm. Like it was really cold last night, but it was a solid action. Uh, we, you know, came out for those that don't know. Uh, we uh, co-sponsored um, a, uh, a rally outside of Milwaukee City Hall uh, as Biden arrived in town um, to, uh, Voice our demands for immediate COVID relief. Ending all of these fucking wars, dude. You know, there's there's so much to really unpack with that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But first, Nate, uh, what we talk about on Mr. Nice Guy, we talk love and fear, passion and creativity. And so, um, as mentioned before, we met each other through organizing in the PSL. We went through candidacy together. Nate, uh, where are you originally from? Um, pretty close to Milwaukee, actually. Uh, I grew up in this town called Merton. Uh, it's in like northwestern uh, Waukesha County. Um, kind of when I was growing up, it felt very rural. And now it's like far less because most of the cornfields are now um, like subdivisions. Uh, but yeah, definitely had a very like rural uh, growing up. I lived with my grandparents in a hundred year old farmhouse on like three acres with two sides of it being a cornfield. Uh, so yeah, just like running around outside and stuff like that. Yeah. I was going to say, were you like a real outdoors kid? You know what? Uh, <laughs> like when I was, when I was really young, uh, I was outdoorsy and then I hit maybe like seventh or eighth grade and I became emo. Uh, and so I like, I kind of stopped going outside, uh, spent a lot of time like watching movies and uh, 
listening to music and uh, just like being emotional and <laughs> keeping the door shut. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wearing jeans in the summer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like weirdly enough, then it came back around uh, when I was like 16 or something like that. I, uh, this is like a very embarrassing, like basic bitch thing to say, but I read uh, Into the Wild. And then like, after that, I got like really into hiking and uh, backpacking and stuff like that and got more outdoorsy again. And that's how it happens. You, uh, <laughs> you enter that portal through uh, a book like that. And uh, you're just, um, you're on a new leaf. All of a sudden you uh, grow a serious affinity for leaves and trees and birdies <laughs> and shit. Yeah. Yeah, actually, a, a weird thing about that uh, is uh, Chris McCandless, the guy who that book is written about, uh, he died five days before I was born, which I found kind of interesting. Very interesting. It, it sounds like you've gone through like a lot of different like, um, like hobbyist phases, sort of, which is kind of a good um, segue into asking you how you really kind of started with the camera. Like, what was the first... What first piqued your interest in it? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, just to follow up on that, like 100% accurate. Yeah, I'm like, um, I was not the kid that was like 100% sure of myself. And I did go through like a lot of things that I was positive I was going to pursue as my future. And then it lasted like a couple of months. But yeah, it's kind of been on and off with um, the camera, as you say. Uh, when I was much younger, like grade school, mid middle school, um, I got a, uh, like a camcorder for a holiday. And I used to make uh, like sketch comedy videos with uh, my best friend at that time. His name was Casey. Uh, and then also with like the, the emo music and stuff like that, we would record uh, like live uh, practice kind of things. And then like do these little skits as well. So if I would have stayed on that trajectory, I think like I would have had a very like, not to say I'm as good as Spielberg, but like a very Spielberg-esque type of thing where it's like, oh, you found your thing very early on and just like went with that forever. And in fact, like the first thing I remember telling an adult that I wanted to be when I was older was a movie director, which I think is a really weird thing for like a little kid to say. <laughs> But um, yeah, and then uh, I went to school originally for like uh, journalism, like political journalism, uh, and quickly that morphed into like maybe just English. Uh, and then I did go to film school for like a semester or two uh, and like film studies stuff. And then I went back to English, um, which, not to knock the UWM film program because it is like kind of world renowned as this like really great experimental filmmaking program. And they shoot like 16 millimeter real film and all that kind of stuff. And it was very fun, but I don't think that anybody told me that there was like a whole film industry. And so I just kind of got it in my head. Like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to like make it as a film director. And I think if I would have went to a more like 
industry-based school where they're like, oh, well, you can get like a union grip job and, uh, you know, still work on movies, but like you might not even be in the credits, but you're still like, you know, working on sets and stuff like that. Like that probably would have interested me more, but I ended up uh, going back to English with like creative writing and then eventually just dropped out because I was kind of, uh, you know, I didn't have like a, a plan or an idea of really what I wanted to do. Um, then <laughs> I got a, a job at a bike shop and for like six years worked as a bike mechanic and that, sorry for the long story, but that is how I got into the photography is uh, it's a seasonal job in Wisconsin. So, you know, and they don't always tell you for sure whether or not you're going to work during the winter. So one winter it was just like, yep, we don't have a spot for you. Uh, and so I had to like quick, like break my lease, move back in with my mom. And then I just had like a lot of free time and uh, just went hiking and taking pictures. And it just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it was just something I was doing. And then I posted a picture on Instagram and it got like 30 likes, which for me at that time was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so like from then on, I was just like, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Well, well, I mean, it kind of what you're saying, like, I think that, uh, all of that, like, um, sort of like those phases you went through, like all fall into tandem with like, you really like finding yourself and accessing those different like territories of how you wanted to express yourself. And you landed on the photography. Um, what was the, uh, the bike shop? You worked at uh wheel and sprocket oh yeah yeah i've heard that that one's uh esteemed from what i understand it's big for sure yeah it's like um basically anywhere you go in the country you can drop that name and i think it's the biggest trek dealer in the country so it's uh like if, if you're in the industry you basically know it that's pretty dope yeah yeah i i also went to uwm for journalism and um I, I took a couple film classes because, like, I was interested in film and, like, you know, I just thought it would be another avenue of, like, storytelling that maybe would appeal to me. But, yeah, it's – UWM's film school is just, you know, wildly, like, abstract and uh, it weeded me out so fast. <laughs> like, I I remember we watched, like, a, um, like a Chopped and Screwed – version of to kill a mockingbird um <laughs> i want to watch that yeah i'm sure it's on youtube somewhere i'll send it to you but it's i don't know if i just didn't really have the capacity to like appreciate like that we were just being exposed to different um you know like editing techniques and uh, just styles of, of filmmaking. I don't know if I just didn't have the capacity at the time because I was like 19, but it just, it wasn't for me, man. I, I was just like, yeah, I'll just make dumb skits with my roommates and have fun with it. Like we're not, I'm not making no, like, you know, David Lynch, Milwaukee mystery or some shit. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't knock David Lynch, but yeah, definitely. Like, I feel you on that. I'm not a, I'm not like a huge like abstract or like uh, non-narrative uh, kind of film person. Yeah. There's stuff that like rises to the top, 
like I feel similar with anime. It's like I'll watch like the very top of that rung, like the stuff that everybody sees, like Eraserhead and stuff. But I'm not like super big into. All yeah, that. yeah. Like I love his work. I love Lynch's work. Don't get me wrong, but like I would never even try to like go down that path myself. I just really wasn't for me. Um, yeah, and like, um, speaking of like abstract films, did you see that new movie? I'm thinking of ending things. Yes, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like. I like I just watched it the other night and it was one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen and it's so like it's I really had to read up on the symbolisms but the way my friend described it like when we were talking about it it's like it's a, like a wonky dream mm -hmm. yeah that that kind of stuff I can get decently enough into um, like I like movies that are odd but still have like a narrative base to them and i feel like that that movie still had like a plot um there's some stuff where it's like it gets into like non-plot territory and it's hard for me to like focus because yeah. i don't know where we're like going you know what I mean? yeah totally like that's how i feel about like the david lynch movie lost highway i couldn't tell you what that movie was about um <laughs> but <laughs> I digress. Um, so, so yeah, you started with the photography just from like that period of um, moving back home with mom and um, just doing some self exploration, and then uh, it just kind of became like a regular thing beyond that. Yeah, it was uh, like at first it was kind of just something I was doing uh, alongside hiking, like. Uh, it gave a purpose to hiking in a way. It was like, I wasn't just like walking by myself. It was like, oh, I could go out and like collect these images. So it gave me the impetus to like keep doing that. Um, and then uh, I think I was just sort of trying to like figure out how to do it better. So I started uh, looking at YouTube stuff and uh, it's strange to say now because this isn't my style of photography at all. Um, and I'm probably gonna forget his name, but there, there's like this younger guy from uh, Washington that started vlogging like basically at that time. And he was like a photographer and uh, his vlogs were just him like driving around in his Prius that he lived out of and taking pictures of different people. and. So because of that, I started taking uh, more like lifestyle-y portrait stuff. Um, just like asking people that I know and friends of mine if they wanted to like hang out and then I would shoot some photos of them. And that was it for a while. And then eventually, like it's hard to tell like exactly how these switches happen, but I ended up getting a film camera and uh, basically the first role of film that I shot, I got featured on uh, an Instagram that had like, like over a hundred thousand uh, followers and the photo got like 3,500 likes or something like that. And so like that, you know, yet again, the Instagram thing was like, okay, I'm gonna take this style of film photo, you know? 
And <laughs> I did that for like a very long time, like a couple of years, um, kind of doing this style of photography that uh, is reminiscent of uh, a style that was done in the 70s. It's called like the new topographic movement um, with people like uh, Stephen Shore. It's like landscapes, but not of nature, of more like man-made stuff. Uh, it's very right now, at least within the film community. Um, a lot of people take trips out west and take pictures of like dusty old gas stations and stuff like that. And I definitely like that style of photography still, but it's something that I've like consciously been moving away from. Um, just because, you know, I got... Uh, I got like published a couple times in books and had some stuff in galleries and everything, but I couldn't like justify to myself why I was taking those pictures. And now that I'm like doing other things, I notice, or I, I now realize like how much of a, uh, like pump the brakes on me as a photographer, because it was something that I knew exactly how to do. So I would just go out, and it was more about like finding lo these locations. Uh, but I just noticed that like for a while I was taking a picture where like there was a car in like the bottom right corner of like every single shot that I took. And I was like, I got to stop <laughs> doing this. And uh, obviously that style of photography is going to be like, regardless of what I wanted, because I very much felt about those photos like they were very like lonely and alienating and it sort of sort of was showing like the decay of that like idyllic America mm -hmm. uh, because it was like these same photos that you were seeing from the new topographics time but sort of like ruined by age um, but I think the way that it comes off more often than not is nostalgic uh, and more so like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that time? Uh, and that's not something that I'm interested in, uh, like, uh, kind of throwing out there. And I'm of two minds, or maybe not, but like, I don't think that you have to necessarily have like a political bend to your art. Like, I think when you're like creating or doing a project, it doesn't have to be political, but I think that regardless, it is political. You know what I mean? Like you can make something with no intention of uh, having it perceived one way. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, that's how it should be. Like, I think that the way that an audience takes in something that you make should be their own thing. Yeah. You know? Like if I'm shooting photos and I'm sequencing them and I put a title on it, like I think that should be enough to like give you the skeleton of my idea and then, you know, your viewing of it makes it. Um, but still it's like, I can't as somebody who is political, like separate my, what I know to be true, which is that uh, it is going to like do something, you know, yeah. in that realm. And so, yeah, one one part of it is that it was just not very inspiring. And the other part of it was that it's very much like, ooh, like, you know, Americana or whatever. And uh, so I just started moving into different stuff. And uh, that's kind of where I am now. I'm just trying out a, 
a bunch of different things and um, you know, trying to like make more commercial stuff because I'm freelance now. So I like have to make money doing it. Um, but trying to like find a balance between, you know, making more like long form journalism type of stuff. Uh, and then also like the, the commercial stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. And I know what you mean when you're talking about like the, um, like capturing sort of that, like the wear and tear of American development as it, as it decays, as it is obviously a, um, a, uh, a failed venture. And it's like, sure you can like take pictures of that and like kind of you might admire some like the aesthetics and some of the beauty of like like believe me i love old abandoned places places like i think that stuff's cool but but at the same time like it is kind of like you know it sometimes it you can't help but beg the question of like well considering like you know for example this old gas station that's abandoned um like considering it's a failure like it failed as a commodity here in this community um and also but also considering that be, being as it's a gas station or as you know there might be some kind of building that might have taken up a lot of natural resources to put there it's like since it failed was it really worth like disturbing the natural environment to begin with and uh, you know there's there's a lot of layers like you know social layers of asking those kinds of questions but that's why it's like yeah so that's why sometimes when i look at like skyline photos for example i'm like yeah you know you can think a city is beautiful just like on the surface but it's also like look at all this urban development that is profiting so much off off of milking the earth's resources and like i've been it's kind of the um the increasingly like political, um, you know, way of thought and lifestyle that comes with being radicalized. Like it just inserts itself in basically all of your admirations of art and nature and specifically human geography and how we've interacted and treated our, you know, our, uh, natural surroundings um and how our cultures have interacted with it like that's something that i find really interesting like just how we as different peoples have interacted with our environments and uh, um and from a political perspective like how that is so exponentially how we need to like abolish and dismantle and kind of re-envision like what we see for the way we interact with our environment before, you know, our planet dies. <laughs> so, you know, like, does what I'm saying make sense to you? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and the uh, I think the tricky part with that is that, like, you know, there you got to find like a balance with it because you like that thought process is exactly like the thought process that I'm talking about. But I think that at a certain point, you have to like, just still do the thing. 
you know, because like by making that stuff, even if like, yeah, it's like this weird thing where you have to have either the, the lack of knowledge to stop yourself from doing it, or you have to have the courage to like make the mistake of doing it, I suppose. Uh, and not to say that this is something that I'm actively doing because I think I'm too scared to like make these kind of choices. But uh, I think that even like pursuing something like that and having it come across negatively that allows people to have that conversation about it is like as useful or it's more useful than not doing it. And I think that when you start to think about this stuff, you could easily talk yourself out of basically making anything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so especially with photography, it's like with film photography is like these horrible chemicals. And with digital photography, you have like lithium ion batteries and like all this crazy kind of mining stuff that you have to do just, just to get the thing itself. Yeah. And then there's all like this exploitative sort of nature of it where you're taking pictures of people uh, or like of their houses or something like that and you might end up selling that thing, you know? And like, there's actually a, an interesting conversation that happened recently. Do you know uh, Dorothea Lang? Um, I think I know that name. Yeah, she's a, she's a really famous photographer or she, uh, she might be, she's probably dead now, but uh, she was one of six photographers, I think that were hired by uh, the US government in the depression to travel around the country and take photos of um, the depression. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a famous photo that I'm positive you've seen. It's a mother sitting at the mouth of a tent with two little kids and the little kids are kind of like tucked into her and she's like looking off into the distance. Um, and recently that's like come back around because uh, people were sharing that the lady who the picture was taken of was kind of pissed about it. She was like, she never asked me my name. She like took a picture of me and like sold it and I never saw a penny from it. So there's all these like, yeah, I don't know. I, it's a, it's a complicated thing, like in all dimensions, like what yeah. you're taking pictures of, who you're taking pictures of, what you're taking pictures with and all that kind of stuff. And so at a certain point, it's just like, you are doing something bad. Yeah. <laughs> you still have to do it. Right. Well, yeah. yeah like it begs, really massively philosophical questions about the ethics of human expression. And, uh, you know, you can, you can all kind of boil it down to everything we do is inherently selfish. Like mm -hmm. even just by being creative, you are inherently selfish. But the question is when it becomes like, that is not like inherently a bad thing as much as like, where do you draw the line where you are exploiting like others or exploiting something that's very precious and sensitive, such as, you know, like a nature preserve that's like, you know, really like, like sacred grounds to, to different people or something like that. Like taking into consideration how delicate something might be like, I mean, another, a big thing I've, I've kind of seen like, especially as it pertains to photographers and filmmakers is like, you know, people that were taking, I'm sure you've probably confronted like this conversation at one point. It's like people documenting and taking pictures of the protests, you know, and it's just like, 
people making their voices heard and like people being out in the streets and you know there might be some you know there's agitation there might even be some violence or unrest at some point like these are kind of some biting questions to ask yourself about like what you do and why you do it and uh, you know there might there's no like objective answer to it you know it's all kind of based on subjective perception of like like what you were doing this for and like why it's worth doing and uh, and in terms of you know you're talking about like the, the 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 chemicals that go into film stuff you know it's like like i always kind of think of that mantra that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism um which is also sort of my justification for doing everything such as you know eating meat and like and uh my justification for like still using plastic or it's like or why we're talk why we talk about like people that still give their money to fast food corporation. I, I never question like the moral character of anyone doing what they're doing unless they're being like outwardly and excessively exploitative about it, like blatantly where they're not even trying to like, you know, find some kind of like, where there's, you, you, there's no moral justification for certain things, you know? And then the Dorothy Lang case, I mean, that's a pretty, that might be a, good example of like you know we're taking picture of all this really it's like this uh heinous poverty but it's like at this point all these people are just seen as subjects they're not seen as human beings but it's like those photos are also at the same time they're very important so people understand like the historical implications of like what was happening and how it affected people like man a hundred percent and like that's that's what I was actually going to bring up. If you didn't bring that up, it's like, it is hard to say, you know, because uh, the Dorothy, Dorothy Lang, that photo is famous. And like that photo did actually convince people to like fight against some of these like negative things that were happening in, uh, in the great depression and like Ansel Adams photos of like Yosemite and stuff like that. <laughs> like on one hand, they drove a bunch of people to go to Yosemite, which like causes turmoil to that area. But they brought so many people there that they were able to convince enough people to make it a national park and protect it from development or like, uh, you know, like resource extraction or something like that. So it's like, there's, there's probably in any given thing that you do a way that you can look at it where it's bad and a way that you can look at it where it's good. And especially with photography, like, you know, as far as the arts go and like, I don't, you know, from day to, I, I never really call myself an artist. I just call myself a photographer because I do think that like, it's at least the kind of stuff that I'm doing isn't like quite as impressive as like a painting or something, but in a way, like, because of that, it's almost like more exploitative, you know, because you're like, you know, all these decisions are more like ethereal than a painting is. It's like with painting, it's like, you know, I get what you're doing. Like you start with a blank canvas, you take paint and you make an image with it. But like the way that I'm making an image is I'm sort of like curating uh, life, you know? <laughs> so uh, like 
people and places are my like raw materials. So it is going to be like, it's inherently exploitative of people, but like there's images that I see where it's like, well, depending on the negative outcome for that person, like if they just felt uncomfortable that there was a camera in their face, it's like, I don't know, maybe I feel like that's worth it. Cause like, you know, we're all going to die at a certain point. And this, this is horrible coming from a white guy. And I understand that, but like, regardless, it's hard for me to like, look past this, like these images endure, like you could be looking at some image like Robert Adams, He's this German guy that came over to the US uh, in like the 50s. He made a book called The Americans. And there's like this image that's like on the, of the side of a bus. And you see like this little black girl in the back and you see like a white girl in the front. And it's like, and this guy's a, a white guy and he's a foreigner, like, or he's from Germany, he's not American. So in like, in that way, he's like not telling his story you know what I mean? But like this image is like this enduring image of, uh, of that time. And it's like, sometimes I feel like as, uh, as like liberal subjects in like a liberal nation, we, uh, we focus obviously like on the individual. And so like, we focus on the individual's responsibility for these things too. So like recently, uh, there's this photographer from Minneapolis, Alex Soth. Uh, he was hired by, I think, the New York Times to go, I don't remember all the details, basically go to some location and take pictures of a historic Black neighborhood in that city. And uh, he got a bunch of shit because there was uh, a Black female photographer in that community that was taking pictures of that community and he got shit you know what I mean like and I'm not sure like I can understand to a certain extent but to another extent it's like well like at that point he he's like a worker you know and he's he's got to make money and you know to a certain extent maybe he didn't need to take that job because he's doing pretty well but not as well as the New York fucking times. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. it's like on the New York times to do that or more, uh, more than not, like it's on the structure, like it's on the people to change the structure of the country so that we don't have a white supremacist character to our country. Like that's why that happened, you know, because like it's easier for white guys to like rise through the ranks of photography and it's easier for them to get meetings with editors at prestigious publications like the New York Times. And so that's why like Alex Soth, Alex Soth is a famous photographer. The New York Times wants to hire famous photographers to do that, you know? So it's like, it's not like any one of these like individual things. It's like this whole systematic thing, but in some ways that it's targeted, like it's gonna, you know. Yeah. No, I, I know precisely what you mean, like where, um, I mean, these are stories that one way or another need to be told. And I ca- the controversy, I guess, is kind of like how they're being told or like who they're being told by. And I know that, you know, things like identity politics can certainly, certainly play into that. And, but I think the important part really is 
that I'm sure most people would agree with universally is that we just, everyone just kind of has to know their place, you know, like, I mean, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I mean, we were talking earlier about how, like, just by doing, by being creative or doing something like having a platform, um, having a brand is inherently selfish. Well, take this show, Mr. Nice Guy. Like, it's like that, like, my show is literally me bringing other people on to be vulnerable and to like, in a lot of cases, either talk about their oppression, talk about their insecurities, talk about like, what is like, you know, driving them to like, keep going and stuff like that. Like, that's like, and it's like, I'm bringing people on in, in this, in this uh, zone to do that. And like, one could see that, and and these are these are like, you know, pretty um, recurring internal battles. Like I have gone back and forth about where it's like, what am I really doing? You know, or it's like I ask myself, it's like, like why am I doing this, and who am I doing it for? And it's like, you know, I'm like, especially when I'm trying to like bring people from different marginalized communities to talk about like, you know, what they're doing, and like how people can support them. But I'm also like, definitely taking into consideration the fact that I am a cis white guy um, that doesn't know a lot of oppression that um, I've certainly asked a lot of questions about. So yes, like in that, in that case, it's like, you know, yes, I have to know my place there, but also like, I also think, look at it like, well, these people's stories do need to be told you know, and they, people need platforms to do that. And, uh, you know, like, you never know how, if someone's story is told, how that's going to impact their community, how it's going to impact just the seamlessness of the internet, like who might see it that never would have seen it otherwise. And therefore, like conversations might happen. And, you know, on a small scale, or a large scale, depending on like, you know, how reputable the the platform is, like change might occur. And so that's where it's like a give and take, mm-hmm. you know? So I just, you know, we, we just have to believe that we're fighting the good, good fight and uh, doing, doing the work that like, you know, we take a lot, it takes a lot of risks doing both personal risks and like the risks of who you're involving. But it's like, is this for a greater, just for a great, a greater and more equitable future that we both want? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like the, with the PSL stuff too, it's like, um, you know, at least at least I am also like doing the more like unsexy, unprofitable stuff as well. Like at least that gives me a little bit of a, a sense of ease where it's like, I'm not being like a hundred percent exploitative, you know, like, although I, I don't really think the stuff that I'm taking pictures of is really like the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, if someone needs you to delete that picture, you can always just do that, like if they, if the issue comes up. But you yeah. know, that's what was your first, um, like I guess, militant 
photo shoot, like where you were like uh, shooting like a, a protest or an action or like mm. a, a rally or something like um, what was the first time you did that? Uh, honestly, it was the uh, like the March 1st or April 1st car caravan for the PSL in 2020. Mm. Like I um I didn't really do, or I didn't go to like protests or anything like that uh, before I joined the PSL. Uh, so yeah, I, my, my militant politics have always been like on the side of the photography and photography was more of like, um, you know, something that I did to like escape the politics. It was like, you know, most of the photography I was doing for a very long time was just um, either like taking a road trip or like taking walks. And uh, it was sort of like meditative where I just listen to uh, listen to some music and go for like a hour or two hour walk and just take photos. Um, so yeah, the, they didn't really mesh too much until 2020, basically. I got you. Sure. Well, it's actually a good segue into talking a little bit more about the PSL and the radicalization. So like how did what kind of sparked your journey towards like getting more and more like uh into revolutionary socialism like identifying with it and gradually like finding the PSL uh well so <laughs> I was like a really weird kid and uh I watched like the history and the military channel all the time like as young, you know, like fifth and sixth grade, I was watching like documentaries about World War II and stuff like that. Um, and uh, was always kind of interested in politics. And I think it had something to do with like watching the uh, 2000 election with my mom when I was like really young. Uh, and then, you know, got very obsessed with like 9-11 and the Bush presidency and the, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war and stuff like that. Uh, so I was like, <laughs> I was the weird like eighth grader, like yelling at my dad about uh, politics and weirdly enough, like about Reagan, because I also uh, like, uh, I guess freshman year of high school, I got into uh, hardcore punk. Uh, so like Dead Kennedys uh, in particular is probably still one of my favorite bands, but I took on like a lot of those politics, you know, and it was of a different time. Uh, but then through that, it was like a combination of like the punk and then also uh, the World War II stuff. Because if you look at World War II for long enough, despite the resources that you normally get as an American, you are going to come across like the Red Army and the Soviet Union. But that wasn't the, that wasn't my impetus uh, towards communism. It was actually, uh, I read about, I, I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, but I think it's a town called like, it looks like Limousine and it could be Limousine, uh, but it's this town in France. And uh, it was this hub of resistance fighters and they were communists. Uh, and up until I think like 2008, their government since World War II had been communist, like their municipal government. Uh, and that was like, that was kind of fascinating to me 
And then from there, I think I bought the uh, Communist Manifesto. This was like freshman or sophomore year of high school. Um, but in like, you know, I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't have the knowledge to know the intricacies of like all of the things that went on with the Soviet Union and with, with Cuba and all that kind of stuff. So I was afraid to say that I was a communist because I just didn't have the, the knowledge to like defend myself. So I called myself an anarchist because that's a lot easier, 100%. Like people really don't push on you if you call yourself an anarchist. They just kind of think that you're like eccentric. Yeah, um, like you're just like, you're just kind of an edge lord, and like, yeah. you know, you just, you uh, derive pleasure from disarray and shit like, I don't know. Well, but I, I always came at it from like, uh, like, cause I would try to explain to people when they'd be like, oh, like, like, what do you mean you're an anarchist? And I was like, well, I just like, uh, I just want people to be like taken care of and not have like all this crazy, ex like money spent on doing this stupid shit, like blowing people up. Uh, and so that, that was like a really easy way to defuse people. And I, I never really had to defend myself. Um, and as I got better at defending myself with anarchism, I eventually started calling myself an anarcho-communist. Cause I was like, okay, I can add this on. Cause I can probably defend that too. Because when you, when you say that you can just be like, if somebody's like, oh, what about the Soviet union? It's like, well, not, no, I'm an anarcho-communist. Like I don't, I'm not, I don't know anything about the Soviet Union. Don't talk to me about the Soviet Union. Um, and that, like, you know, I was probably an anarchist through high school. And then, like, the first year or so of college, I would consider myself an anarcho-communist. And then I think right around the time of the, uh, like, 2015 primaries is when I started calling myself like a communist or Marxist and then Marxist Leninist eventually, mostly from like studying stuff about the Soviet Union history, Cuba, uh, you know, reading like Marxist Leninist literature and stuff. And just eventually I got comfortable enough to say that because it's like, at this point, I can defend myself, yeah. you know, and I'm sure enough of myself that if you don't agree with me, like, that's fine. You know, I don't have to prove anything, but um, it is funny. Like, <laughs> I have this really embarrassing memory of uh, <laughs> talking about anarcho-communism with my cousin, who uh, he's like a, a liberal for the most part. Um, but I mean, he's like very open-minded and is always just interested in like hearing what yeah. people have to say. And, you know, the whole time, like, He's just like kind of that cool older cousin that like from a very early age will like give you the time of day, you know, like when you're a little, when you're younger and most people don't give a shit, you know, yeah. it's like, no, I, I want to know like why you say you're an anarchist, like explain that to me. And so <laughs> I had a, a conversation with him about anarcho-communism that I brought up Steven Pinker in. Uh, and I was like, no, like things are just getting progressively better. And he was like, I, I don't think that that's true. And I'm like, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. <laughs> and I look back on that now and I'm like, oh man, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, I get that for sure. Like that's kind of what has made me, that's sort of what made me refrain from like 
joining a political party for a while was that like, I feel like I had generalized like beliefs of like what I felt was right, but I didn't have a lot of, like, I'm not like a big reader. Like I read articles or like I read Wikipedia, but I don't read like books so much. And, um, and like my dad's a pretty big history buff. So, I mean, I would get some stuff from him, like we'd have discussions or I'd ask him questions, but like, yeah, it, like it wasn't until kind of, for one, I was very like disaffected after the last year's election um, the, or last year's primary uh, where Bernie was pushed out once again. And um, I just needed an answer. Like I just needed something that some alternative cause like the Dems ain't it. <laughs> um, and a lot of people can say like, oh yeah, like people can go either way with that. Like they can take either route of like either, like there's no hope and we just have to accept it. And I'm just gonna continue my blind faith in these clowns because there's just no, there's just no like um, real uh, momentum with like an alternative. Or you can be like, no, fuck that. Like, there can be momentum if we push for it. And that's what enticed me to join the PSL. And from there, I got the candidacy classes and actually received a lot of that, like, education and historical contexts of, like, a lot of the things that are often um, controversies about communism, like, say, the Soviet Union, Cuba, China, like... Venezuela, like all that stuff actually being given like more in-depth like um, discourses about like what's really going on versus like what we're led to believe and like how each candidacy class is kind of like progressively like um, uh, it it like seems into the next like kind of like a, an odyssey of re-education basically. Yeah. And then, so then at that point, just like, you know, I was like, oh no, I, I feel like I actually do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, there's, there's definitely like, if you have the fundamentals down, if you have the principles down, you'll make a lot of these open-minded so-called liberals realize that they're already socialists in yeah. a lot of ways. They're just afraid of that word. Um, yeah. Or conservatives. Yeah, yeah. Or it's like a lot of people just they claim they they claim identification with these very obsolete type like political titles or terms when really like I'm sure if you took like a survey, if you took like a political quiz or something like about where you land, you're not gonna land where you think you do. You're probably gonna be more with us. You're just you just have like preconceived notions based on, you know, the mainstream media. Yeah. And I think like to some extent that's probably on purpose. Like, yeah, I think America is uh, like, I don't know, somewhat unique in how we like, basically if you're talking politics, there's a, a vocabulary for American politics that is the same as European politics, but the definition of those words just means something completely different. Like if you said like a liberal in uh, 
France or something like that, like the connotation wouldn't be the same as America. And yeah. I don't know if that's just like, I would imagine it's probably on purpose that like these, uh, these words have been kind of like degraded of their meaning over time. And they're more of like a cultural affect, which I think is like kind of the project of neoliberalism is like changing politics into like cultural affect. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's very socially constructed um, to suit what is like the neoliberal populist thing. Um, like aren't Canada's uh, political part, aren't they like the opposite colors, like red and blue? Like aren't um, like the more left-leaning people like red and the more conservatives are blue? I mean, historically speaking, uh, the more left parties are typically red, um, you know, because like that has been kind of a symbol of socialism since the beginning of socialism. Yeah. But now we talk about the dot of blue and the sea of red, like when we're talking about, you know, like a state like Texas or a state like Wisconsin. But our parties did flip, you know, like uh, during the... Uh, like the civil war, like pre-civil war and stuff like that. It was the Republicans that were like abolitionists and stuff. So, um, you know, maybe, I don't really know where like the red and the blue and the donkey and the elephant came from, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I've asked my dad about that one. Yeah. But anyway, um, so uh, what do you, so, so then you, like, how did you find the PSO? Uh, well, actually, like just going back to something that you said earlier, I definitely like up until fairly recently, maybe like 2018 or something like that, I was definitely like a nihilist, <laughs> you know, like I was just pretty sure that everything was going to end badly and that there wasn't really any point to like try. Um, and like, so since since kind of like turning the corner on that, I think it was like Rev Left Radio, honestly. I just started listening to that and it was like, you know, by a person who's an organizer. And there's something like infectious about revolutionary optimism or just somebody who's like putting in the work anyway. And um, so eventually I got it in my head that I wanted to join an organization. And uh, I, when I joined the PSL, I didn't remember why I know about the PSL, but now embarrassingly, or not embarrassingly, you know what, I stand by it. I, uh, I remember why. And it's because uh, I listened to the podcast Chapo Trap House, which on the left is like very, you know, like people, people turn down their nose at you if you say that, which whatever, problematic fave, it's fine. Um, but uh, they I know like, a lot. I know a handful of people who love Chapo Trap House. I get it. <laughs> I stand by, it, you know, like they're think, just like the edgelord leftists, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, you know, some of them have more like DSA tendencies, but there are certain people that are like 100% Marxists. And, you know, I might not agree with their assessment of certain things, but I like it's enjoyable. I don't, I don't, go I mean, I'll like, take, I'll take that over, I'll take that over like a Joe Rogan loyalist or something, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And I like my brain is so like poisoned by politics that I have to like get my entertainment from political people anyway. So it's like, oh, that's like the entertainment, you know, yeah. and then like I'll go to other people for the education. But um, 
yeah, they, they named drop the PSL uh, in, uh, they had an episode about the uh, Charlottesville uh, thing that happened, like the rally or whatever. Um, and they were saying like the different groups that were there and they said the PSL. So I had known about the PSL and uh, I was kind of on the fence between the PSL, the DSA and the FRSO, um, which is <laughs> the DSA I know is a weird one, um, but like, I don't know. It's like, I couldn't decide if I wanted to join an organization that I agreed with a hundred percent, or if I wanted to join an organization that I could potentially be like an insurgent in and like try to pull people a certain way. And I'm very glad that I went the direction that I went because uh, I'm very happy with the PSL. And I think I would have probably been miserable and like gone yeah. fondant if I had joined the DSA and it would have just like affirmed all of my nihilistic beliefs. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think I made the, uh, I definitely think I made the right decision. Um, you know, now having like worked with the PSL for a while and knowing like the, you know, national structure. And I didn't, I honestly didn't know anything about the PSL really, except for that they were like Marxist Leninists yeah. uh, and that there was a chapter in Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt something similar when I joined like I remember when I got off the, the phone with Maddie, when Maddie did like the, like sort of the preliminary interview with me, like, I remember like after talking to them, I, you know, hung, I hung up and then I was like, do I like know what I'm doing right now? <laughs> like, is this like, I, I remember immediately like jumping on Wikipedia and like looking up the PSL. I'm like, oh my God, they're communists. Like, <laughs> like what am I going to tell my parents? Like, what am I going to tell my friends? Like, I'm like, I'm going to be a communist. Like I was like, I was like intimidated, you know, like I was, it felt like I was making like far more a uh, leap of faith than like I was comfortable with initially. But then like when I like took my first candidacy class and like immediately I saw a couple people I knew like in the Zoom call, like I saw Bobby and Erica and Christian, like the, those were the three I knew like before I joined. And I saw them I'm like, okay, well, at least it's like people that like I know and like I'm comfortable with. So like, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. And just like you, like I'm, I'm very glad I did too, because then it just it permanently transformed the way I look at the world and the way I look at myself, you know, the way I look at just every, it, it literally like seeps into um, your perception of everything. And um, yeah, like if I would have joined like the DSA or the FRSO, which not, not, not to knock on them like they're great orgs they do great work they're full of great people great comrades but maybe it just wouldn't have been enough and i would have like after a certain point like reached like a finite level of like well there's still some things that are unanswered but i feel like the psl has fully answered like what i feel is just um which i'm sure it has for everybody in the party and um yeah, like I, 
I wouldn't say I'm like a nihilist, but I definitely say I'm an existentialist mm-hmm. where like shit is meaningless unless you live with with uh, immense purpose. Um, and I don't know if you saw the new movie, the new Pixar movie, Soul. Did you see it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of like is a great testament to to like being radicalized, like where it's like this this young the soul like the little soul 22 is like she's basically like a nihilist and doesn't see any point in living until this guy um um joe gardner like basically like shows her everything that's worth living your life with purpose in and she decides like she wants to fight for it and find it and i feel like that's kind of the i i'd have to say like there can be some um, revolutionary allegories that you could apply to that movie. And yeah. it's such a good movie. It's really fucking good. Um, yeah. And that's that's how I think about this stuff at this point. At this point, I couldn't imagine my, my life without it, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, like, I still have moments where I still, like, think nihilistically. And I think like overarchingly, I still have that as like my, my beliefs, um, you know, like, and I, I don't come from it from like, uh, uh, like the nihilists in Big Lebowski style. I'm yeah. more like, uh, like I was very into like Zen Buddhism for a long time. And I actually like applied to be a Buddhist monk in a, like a monastery in uh, Colorado at one point. Um, so like, I consider that like happy nihilism, you know, where it's more like, well, things don't matter, but that's like a good thing, you know, because like, that means that you don't have like, there's nothing that's, uh, like you can't make a mistake basically, you know, at the end of it, it's like, well, whatever. But, um, regardless of if I feel that I still have in my head too, like, um, do you know, Alan Watts? I know that name. Yeah, he's like a, or he was a philosopher. He's a Zen Buddhist. Um, okay. He's kind of like popular now. There, there's like YouTube edits of his speeches with like mystical music behind it and oh, stuff. Yeah, sure, uh, like okay. Binaural beats, but uh, <laughs> love the internet, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, he he has this thing where he's like, um, you know, uh, when you when you get the message, hang up the phone, uh, or like, uh, you know don't uh don't be angry at the people on the roller coaster who who don't realize that the roller coaster is not real you know because they're the ones actually enjoying the roller coaster and you're the dickhead who is like (laughs) on the roller coaster but like like thinking that it's not real or whatever and so like i feel like i come to all this stuff from that perspective where it's like okay maybe maybe i think this way or that way but the fact of the matter is, is that like, I still have to like participate in life. And I have this drive and this draw towards communism. And so like, that's as good of a thing to do as anything, you know, like, if it doesn't matter, then like, these people who are suffering needlessly, really should not be suffering needlessly. Because if it's completely meaningless, then like there's no meaning for that to be happening. So like that should fucking stop, you know, like if it's meaningless, at least it should be pleasant. 
That's a good one. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so like, I think to some extent, the PSL is like the best thing to do in that situation. Um, because I, I, I listened to this uh, uh, movie director being interviewed one time uh, about creative block or like burnout. And uh, basically what he said was like, have a practice so that if you have burnout or you have creative block, it's not about being inspired. It's about doing the work, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, I think, uh, you know, joining the PSL is like that for me in a way. It's like, even if from day to day, I might not feel like optimistic or inspired, like there's still work to be done and I can just keep doing that work. And then like anything, it's like the fake it till you make it thing. It's like, if you keep doing it, you know, like eventually you'll like hardwire your brain in a different way where you're like, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Where it becomes not so much voluntary, but more instinctual. Yeah. And I've definitely felt that way too, where it's like, you know, that feeling, just that feeling of euphoria, you know, that I, I get from a really like solid action or once we like follow through with our demands or we feel like we're getting answered to some extent like that is something that like i know i personally yearn for and i'm sure a lot of other young comrades do too um where they feel like if we live our lives like with this full intention of like fighting for a better just world for like you know everyone as a whole then you know we maybe some of that those nihilistic tendencies won't always be so like um haunting or insidious or demotivating or feeling like or you just have that constant feeling of ambivalence that i'm sure a lot of people have right now like I don't feel that ambivalence as much as I used to because I always know there is work to be done. And that is the whole kind of the, the foundation of that revolutionary optimism is that, you know, there will be like, there are, there is joy to be had from victory and it'll be worth all of the blood, sweat and tears. So. Yeah. And I think another big thing for me is like the, the comrades too you know it's like to you got have, some great people <laughs> but like i we have some really great people but i think like there's something to be said just about like comradeship in yeah. general it's like you know for a long time i sort of felt like a sideshow act or like uh like communism was like this thing that people who knew me it was like oh haha -ha, you know nathan he's yeah. the he's the communist or whatever yeah. but like to be surrounded by like-minded people who are also like engaged in like working towards something better it's like if you need a cure for nihilism that's a pretty fucking good one it's like to be surrounded by people who quite honestly like do more shit than i do like it's a it's very inspiring to to see like the work that a lot of people do and then also like what you were saying earlier i love like i i respect the hell out of you for uh joining the PSL 
not as a communist and then like coming to it through like the political education and stuff like I I wouldn't have had the courage to do that I didn't have the courage to join the PSL until I was like 1000% positive of the type of like politics that I was into and uh I think in some ways like that that's a little bit like trained in me because with communism it's like people kind of tell you that you're being uh propagandized to or like brainwashed. idealistic i get yeah. the idealistic argument a lot you know. <laughs> yeah yeah unlike uh believing in free market capitalism which right is <laughs> the marketplace of ideas <laughs> hey uh elon musk is actually gonna do really good things because he's just a cool guy that does good things you know we really have to hold the democrats accountable we really do um <laughs> Yeah, well, for one, I, I appreciate that, Nathan. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I like, yeah, like being a com communism becomes less of a punchline these yeah. days. And we're fully living into that. And like, you know, and I'm sure like that um, just the, the way like that term has been harness so much but it's being reclaimed for the sake of just you know an answer to all the mindless and meaningless suffering that i mean has always been there but right now it's just so amplified because like people because thanks to this internet and thanks to social media thanks to the documentation methods like everyone is just seeing it like it's not it's it's someone everyone is so much more conscious of it and that's like making people think twice about like, you know, what they believe and like why they've been led to believe it for so long. And that's an encouraging feeling. So I think that we're gonna, it's gonna be a big year for not only us as the PSL, but also just, you know, um, uh, that calm, the comradeship in general, like all of these, you know, movements and voices and um, platforms are really starting to like rally and uh, call out the bullshit. So uh, I, uh, I feel, I feel good about it. I mean, sometimes it really, really fucking sucks. Uh, it actually sucks most of the time, but the times I do feel good about it, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, uh, it, I mean, obviously it's not a hundred percent cut and dry like this, but it really is like, you know, it's going to come down to like our efforts at this point, because really for a long time, there has not been a better scenario for people just over and over again for a year like all of the things that communists talk about all like the contradictions of capitalism and neoliberalism and stuff like that they're like not being uh like sugar-coated in the slightest like the people who are doing the bad things are saying that they're going to do the bad things for bad reasons to your face over and over again like we're we're being shown that if everybody stops working the stock market crashes and businesses close we're being shown that uh, the government would rather give those, like the 
the stock market money than even like make any attempt to save anybody's life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> we, we're, we're so like people still give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, that like they don't mean what they say, you know, but it's like, <laughs> it's like, but the theatrics of electoral politics are just so exposed right now. Like yeah. it's, it's so it's staring at us, you know, blank in the face of like how much of like a soap opera we've that it is and always has been. Um, yeah, like so. uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi wearing a kinte cloth. Like, as... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to ask quickly is what camera? Like, what are you currently shooting with? Oh, um, yeah, I uh, I have a Sony A7 III. Uh, and I shoot pretty much everything with that. And I have like a smaller camera that I carry around sometimes, uh, which is the Fujifilm X100F. Um, I have a bunch of different cameras. I have a lot of uh, film cameras because that's what I used to shoot for a while. Um, but I, I haven't shot like a roll of film in like a year and a half at this point, basically. I got you. So cool. Well, I always love... Uh and the different toys that uh, photographers uh, have. Um, I, I uh, have a Nikon that I normally, like when I was doing the show in person, that's what I used, but I know nothing about cameras. Maybe I should, <laughs> uh, I might have to like do a little more research. Anyway. Or if you ever need somebody to ask, you know. Yeah, well, right, that's, that's kind of what I'm insinuating. Um, <laughs> thanks Nathan for uh, being on the show today. Uh, great to talk about, you know, really dig into like the, the deep philosophies of like what we believe, why we, why we fight and like how we still retain a semblance of meaning through it all. Like, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to call you a comrade, my friend. Yeah, same with you. I, uh, I really appreciate you just in general, but uh, I also appreciate you having me on here. Can't wait to watch this back and cringe yeah. at all the things that I say. So It'll be great. <laughs> um, so as we're closing out here, I ask everyone the same two questions. Um, what keeps you up at night? Oh, shit. Um, TikTok, actually. Just oh. <laughs> the last couple of nights. I don't know. I got into it. Um, but sorry, no, I'll, I'll answer <laughs> more meaningfully. What keeps me up at night? Uh, I mean, quite honestly, like what keeps me up at night, like my, my driving force for everything is just like, I cannot believe that we're just in a situation where children are allowed to like suffer and die because uh, like a couple of rich people want to just have an amount of wealth that they'll never use for anything. I don't know. That's, that that boggles my mind. That yeah, no that that continues like baffling me every day too. How that's the part of it. It's like we especially really like learned the value of redistribute redistributing our wealth last year. You know, with the pandemic and and with the uprisings and whatnot. 
And that boggles me every single day is like how so much of this wealth that is so like hoarded by the ruling class, not only will never be spent or used, but it won't even be seen. I'm sure a lot of them aren't even conscious of like just how many fucking like dollar bills are in their name in the banks right now. And it's like us poor people, we count every last fucking cent we make. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, like, I think another thing that was very instructive is um, when when the pandemic like first started in the U.S. Uh, and the stock market was in like a free fall, uh, they injected, I think, like two or three trillion dollars into the stock market for a 30 minute, like two percent bump before it went back into its like spiral. And the way that they did that was they just added zeros to uh, the like accounts of, this is something that people don't talk about, but debt to other countries, that is something. That's like a certain amount of money. So like when, uh, when a, a country like, uh, like an African country takes a, a loan from the IMF, that's a hard amount of money that they have to pay back with a specific amount of currency. But when you like, when you do it within a country, it's a very different ball game. Like economies are basically fake. So you can do a lot in them without actually like messing up uh, inflation or anything like that too much. And so that amount of money could have been added to our bank accounts with the same amount of effort you know, they wouldn't have to print the fucking money. They just add the numbers. And, you know, a $4 trillion injection into the stock market didn't jack up inflation. So why would it do that if it was given to people to like stay at home, you know? Jeez, yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's, stuff doesn't have to make you nauseous. Yeah. Um, what puts you to sleep? The other side of that. <laughs> Oh, um, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> no, TikTok does not put me to sleep. Um, a couple of beers for sure. That'll do it. Uh, Same beer. Yeah. Yeah. That and helps. I don't know. Like, not a lot of things, uh, not a lot of things cool me off, I would say. I, I, I don't know if I have an answer for that. Like, I, I guess the thing is, Insofar as I have control over things, I feel comfortable with who I am and what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, not necessarily, well, I guess in the political sense as well, it's like if 12 year old me could see me now, they would be like very stoked. And so I think about that sometimes when I need to like put it into perspective, you know, and so I, I feel like that, that helps. 12 year old me would be pretty stoked too. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it, it's a good reminder of like how far we've come. So thanks again, dude. Um, you're the best. Uh, great talking. And um, yeah, man, uh, for everyone watching uh, who, who stayed with us this whole time, uh, I'll be tagging Nathan Schmidt's uh, photography so you can check it out. Uh, please sure, be, be sure to give him a follow on Instagram. And uh, 
If anyone wants to book you for a shoot, what's, what's the best way to do that? Oh, uh, yeah. DM me on Instagram or uh, you can uh, email me. My email's on Instagram as well. It's uh, info at nathanielschmidt.com. Cool. And also uh, join the PSL. Thank you <laughs> for watching. Mr. Nice Guy, we'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.